Welcome everybody to today's panel discussion, the ICC at 10, organized by the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. Not quite 10 years ago, on July 1st, 2002, the statute of the International Criminal Court entered into force with the six years ratification. That was about four years after its initial adoption and hence quite a little bit earlier than most of <coughs> had predicted. This date marks the culmination much more than the beginning of the rise to prominence of international criminal law and its project to hold to account individuals rather than states for their transgressions directly in virtue of international law. The ad hoc tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia of the early 1990s had revived this project, which really started in earnest with the criminal tribunals for Nuremberg and the Far East after the Second World War. The ICC's opening for business, if you will, about 10 years ago, nevertheless is a milestone. A milestone not least because it bore the potential to cure international criminal law of this taint of alleged retroactivity and victor's justice. That is not the explicit goal, though, that the ICC set for itself. If we look in the preamble of the statute, the goal that the ICC advances for itself is to end impunity which is obviously quite ambitious, and you could argue that even in the context of the robust rule of law of a domestic jurisdiction, that would never be quite achievable to end impunity. So even if that is not what we expected to have done after 10 years, it is now time to take stock of the successes and failures of the court, the International Criminal Court. The three speakers who will do so today are the co-directors of ELAC, and they represent the major fields of study that work together in this interdisciplinary research institute. I'll briefly introduce them in the order in which they will speak, and maybe at the end of it, Jennifer Willich will also be here, but um, we'll start nevertheless. Davo Akante is the Yamani Fellow of Public International Law at St. Peter's College. He is the author of innumerable articles on international criminal law and the co-author of the 2009 Oxford Companion to International Criminal Law and Justice. He is a consultant to the African Union and has assisted counsel in several cases before international courts. David Roden is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs in New York and a senior research fellow here at Oxford. He is a leading authority on the ethics and in war and the author of the seminal work War and Self-Defense from 2002. He is also a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. Jennifer Welsh in absentia, is Professor in International Relations. She is an expert and frequent commentator on the responsibility to protect and the ethics of post-conflict reconstruction. She co-edited the, the 2008 OUP volume entitled The United Nations Security Council and War, the Evolution of Thought and Practice since 1945. They will each speak for about 15 minutes and then we will open for Q&A. Thanks very much, Janina. First of all, let me um, apologize on behalf of Jennifer. She's teaching across town, and she's going to race from the side business school to here, and uh, she, she hopes to be here, well, any minute now. So if you see her, if somebody opens the door and rushes in, that will be, that will be her. Um, what I want to do in the time that I have available is to focus on two problems that have arisen in the first 10 years of the operation of the International Criminal Court, and then go on to discuss what I would suggest has been the main contribution of the court since its establishment. And if I have some time, the fourth thing that I will talk about, or that I will try to do, is to look into the future and to talk about one of the issues that I suspect will come to dominate the court, or at least will come to play a big part in the way in which the court operates over the next 10 years. Okay. As Yanina has already mentioned, um, the ICC statute came into force 10 years ago, and at the time it was actually a matter of surprise that the court had been established so quickly. Now, in one sense, the, court, the establishment of the court was very rapid and in another sense it took forever. The sense in which it took forever is that there had been the prospect of the establishment of this court since the end of the Second World War and a body which all international lawyers know about but which perhaps is little known to the rest of the world, the International Law Commission, 
had been working on a draft statute for the International Criminal Court since the late 1940s. So in that sense, it actually took a, a, a very long time. But when it was decided to convene a conference in Rome in 1998, I think very few people were hopeful that agreement would actually be reached on a statute within the time that was allotted to that conference in Rome. And even after agreement was reached in Rome in 1998, I suspect that many people thought that it would take an incredibly long time for this statute to come into force. After all, it required 60 states to ratify this statute. And for other international treaties that were adopted around the same time as the Rome Statute, which seemed to be far less controversial than the Rome Statute, it had taken decades for those statutes to come into, into force. So if you think about things that appeared to be less controversial, like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, even the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, these had taken at least a decade to come into force. It was remarkable then that the Rome Statute achieved the necessary 60 ratifications in the space of four years. And so in 2002, the statute came into force and the court was established. Just to remind you, and I'm sure you know this, the court was established to prosecute genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. Um, if I have time, I'll return to aggression because, as I'm sure you know, there's no definition of the crime of aggression uh, there was no agreement on the definition of the crime of aggression in Rome, and it was decided to put aside for the moment the question of the definition of that crime and the circumstances under which the court could prosecute for, for aggression. And if I have time, I will, I will return to, to that. Why a permanent international criminal court? Well, it was thought that having a permanent international criminal court would mean that the international community would not need to continue to establish ad hoc tribunals dealing with particular episodes of, of international crimes in various parts of the world. And the idea behind the establishment of the ICC was that a permanent court would um, provide a more realistic prospect that these international crimes would actually be, be prosecuted. There was also some thought that having a permanent ICC would reduce the costs of prosecuting international crimes. One of the key features of the ICC, and this is something that I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about, one of the key features of the ICC is that unlike other international criminal tribunals, it is based on this principle called the principle of complementarity. And that word, complementarity, was introduced into the English language by the statute of the ICC. James Crawford, who is the professor of public, in, the Hill Professor of Public International Law at Cambridge, and who was one of the principal draftsmen of the ICC statute, says that one of his greatest contributions is this word complementarity. He's actually introduced a word into the English language. Not many people have done this. For those of us who work in this area, it's incredibly frustrating because Microsoft Word does not recognize this word. And every time we type this word, there is that squiggly line underneath. Right. But this is a, a, a foundational principle of, of the ICC, and what it means is that the jurisdiction of the ICC is subsidiary to national jurisdiction. In other words, the ICC can only exercise jurisdiction in cases where national courts are not exercising jurisdiction with respect to, to that crime. Now, it's nearly 10 years since the court began operation, and we have just had the first completion of a trial by the court. It's taken nearly 10 years for us to get to, to this point. So even though the Rome Statute came into force very quickly, the court itself has not operated very quickly. And when one compares this with any other international tribunal, the pace has been unbelievably slow. Even the uh, ad hoc tribunals, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and that for Rwanda, which have also operated slowly, even they have operated much quicker than this. Now, there are some explanations for the slow pace of the ICC. For example, unlike Nuremberg and unlike Tokyo, there wasn't a set of defendants waiting to be tried. And unlike the ICTY and unlike the ICTR, 
it was, it was not immediately obvious where the first cases would come from, where in the world those cases would come from. But even then, the pace has still been incredibly slow. The first situation was referred to the court in 2004, and the court has had accused in custody for, I think, over six years now. So to arrive at, a, uh, at the, the completion of the first trial after 10 years has been incredibly slow. Now, the two problems that I want to talk about. It was originally thought that most of the cases brought to the court would be as a result of state referrals. You will recall that there are three ways in which the jurisdiction of the court can be triggered. First of all, uh, a matter can be referred to the court by a state party. Secondly, the prosecutor can exercise jurisdiction on his own motion. And thirdly, the UN Security Council can refer a matter to the ICC. It was originally thought that in most cases, the court would probably acquire a jurisdiction as a result of state referrals. And three out of the seven cases, situations, sorry, that have been referred to the ICC have been referred to the ICC by states. In two situations, they've been referred to the ICC by the UN Security Council, and in the further two, those situations have been triggered by the prosecutor acting on his own motion. However, what has happened with respect to state referrals has been very different from what was originally contemplated. So instead of one state referring a situation arising in another state to the ICC, what has happened is that states have referred to the court situations which arose within their own country. In other words, situations within that state where it appears that international crimes have been committed, and this is what is called self-referrals. Now that process has had some positive aspects, but it has also posed some challenges, not only to how the court operates, but also challenges to how we conceive of the court and what the court is meant to, to do. Now self-referrals have proved to be very positive for the court in the sense that, first of all, this was the mechanism that supplied the first three situations to the court. So these were the situations in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Uganda, and in the Central African Republic. So it helped the court to, to get going. And the fact that those three situations arose out of self-referrals has meant that the states in whose territories the crimes were committed has been committed also to prosecutions by the court. So there has been state, state cooperation and the court has been able to carry out investigations with relative ease within those states. So that has been the positive aspect of self-referrals. However, the challenges have also been, been obvious. First of all, when states have referred crimes to the ICC, they have not intended that the ICC will prosecute crimes that were committed by government officials. Usually when states refer these crimes to the ICC, what they're really saying is, can you please come in and help us to prosecute these nasty rebel groups that are operating in our territory? The court has stated that such referrals cannot be limited only to the acts of, of opposition forces, but must be taken as a referral of the situation as a whole. But in practice, the ICC in all those cases has only prosecuted non-state actors engaged in, in alleged criminality within those regions. So in theory, the acts of all sides are open to investigation and prosecution, but in practice the court has only focused on the non-state party. And you can imagine that the positive aspect of self-referrals which I referred to, the fact that the court has been able to investigate with relative ease, might well change the day that the prosecutor decides to indict somebody from the government side. Now, self-referral poses not just those practical challenges to the court, but it also challenges our conception of what the ICC is for. So first of all, self-referrals challenge the idea of complementarity, which I referred to a moment ago. The idea that the court is there as a court of last resort that is there, that the court is there to operate in situations where national systems are not operating. 
So complementarity suggests that the court is just there to fill the gaps or uh, in domestic legal systems, gaps that would otherwise uh, give rise to impunity. However, self-referrals mean that instead of the court operating as a court of last resort, the court in effect operates as a court of first resort. So rather than these states saying, we will prosecute these crimes, they call on the ICC and they say, you come and, and do it. It means that instead of states bearing the primary responsibility for the prosecution of international crimes, states can simply hand over these cases to the ICC. And this, of course, could lead to an overburdening of, of the court, something that complementarity is supposed to prevent. Now, my own view is that whilst self-referrals, or while self-referrals does have these challenges, those challenges only arise if one has a particular view of the court, the view that I expressed earlier. In other words, if one sees complementarity as meaning that the court is only a last resort, then one will have a problem with self-referrals. However, there's another way of viewing the principle of complementarity. In other words, viewing it not as, a, as the court operating as a court of last resort, but viewing it as a principle of deference in cases of actual conflict of jurisdiction. In other words, complementarity only arises in cases where both the ICC and national courts are actually prosecuting, and in the case of such a conflict, then complementarity says that the court must defer to the national system. Okay. Now, the other related challenge that has been caused by self-referrals is the point that I made earlier, the fact that it encourages the court to act either only or primarily against non-state actors, at least in the cases of these self-referrals. Now, it's quite clear that the court has jurisdiction both over state actors and non-state actors, but some have argued that self-referrals is problematic because it's in the case of state actors in particular that we need international criminal justice, that in the case of non-state actors, we can leave that to states to sort out that the real challenge for international criminal justice is dealing with, if you like, state criminality, circumstances where the, the, the apparatus of the state is, is used and that self-referral challenges that. And so in this sense, what we're seeing is really a sort of perversion of what ought to be. We're seeing international criminal justice focus essentially on non-state actors. And I think there is a point there However, it could be argued that the purpose of international action for, in this area is really to prevent impunity. It's not so much to focus on a particular type of actor, but to prevent impunity. In other words, a situation where actors would otherwise go unpunished. And that to the extent that self-referrals help us to do that, it, it is within the purpose of the ICC. Now let me turn to the second problem, and I'll... I have just one minute left, so I, I can't achieve my aims. But I will. The, the second problem that I really wanted to talk about, and maybe we can talk about it in, in question and answer time, is the relationship between the International Criminal Court and African states. Um, this is something that has proven to be a big challenge over the last four years. Um, I think the story of the relationship between African states and the ICC can be traced in various phases. First of all, there was hope and enthusiasm. Lots of African states joined the statute of the ICC. And all of that seemed to change when the UN Security Council referred the situation in Darfur to the ICC. And most importantly, changed after the prosecutor mm -hmm. sought the indictment of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. And I will just sketch out very quickly what the tensions have, have been. Um, essentially, since the prosecutor sought the indictment of Bashir, we have seen repeated calls by the African Union for non-cooperation by African states with the ICC. Um, twice a year now, actually, it's now a routine, much like the General Assembly passes a bunch of resolutions against Israel, the African Union now twice yearly passes a bunch of resolutions against the ICC. 
Um, my own view, to summarize, and I can elaborate on this later on, is that actually the position is not as bad as it appears to be. First of all, and I'll say this and, and sort of finish there, first of all, African states continue to ratify the statute of the ICC. Um, I think there have been three ratifications from African states in the last year and a half or thereabouts. Secondly, African states continue to support ICC prosecution in most of the ICC cases. The tension has arisen actually principally in those cases that were referred to the ICC by the Security Council, principally. A little bit in relation to Kenya, but principally in relation to Sudan and Libya. And even in relation to those situations, the African Union has dropped its objection to prosecutions except in the case of the Darfur situation and except in the case of the prosecution of Bashir. And finally, um, a number of African states continue to support ICC prosecution and um, the, 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 the mood of the African Union and the resolutions that have been adopted by the African Union, the mood and the tone of them have changed over the last couple of, of years. Fortunately, I need to stop there, but I can return to some of these issues later on. Thanks, Dapo. I suggest we move directly on to David Rodin. Great, thanks, Yelena. Well, when we look at the ICC after 10 years, um, 10 years of um, achievements, but also 10 years of challenges, should we view the glass as being half empty or half full? Now, optimists, as we know, will always say the glass is half, is half full, and pessimists will always say that the glass is half empty. Management consultants, so they say, and both Jennifer and I were practitioners of that dark art in a former time, management consultants will say your cup is just twice as big as it needs to be, downsize. Yeah. Um, a scientist will say there's only one correct answer, and that is that the glass is entirely full, half with water and half with air. <laughs> but when you think about the negativity of situations, particularly situations like we find the ICC in its current state of development, it seems to make a very considerable difference whether the level of the water is going up or down. In other words, whether there is movement and what the direction of that travel is. So what I thought I would spend a little bit of time thinking about is how that question of the dynamics or the transitional aspect of what um, the ICC is trying to establish here, how that plays into some of the characteristic problems that we see um, the ICC is having experienced within the last 10 years, particularly with respect to this very notorious trade-off between justice and peace. And I started thinking about this, I guess, when I recalled a very um, remarkable meeting that I went to in 2006. This had been organized by um, a person who I know is known to many of you in the room, Larry May, who at that time was um, at Washington University. And the conference had, uh, he, he'd organized was to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the Nuremberg Trials. And um, every luminary from the world of international justice was there, including um, Whitney Harris and Henry King, who at that time were the last two surviving members of the original U.S. prosecuting team at Nuremberg. Um, both of them have, have now sadly passed away. But I remember Whitney Harris's presentation very, very vividly. It was an absolutely electrifying presentation. His thesis was that there had been three great waves in the development of international criminal justice. The first was the one that they themselves had initiated with Nuremberg trial, Tokyo trial, that had really established many of the principles that would become operative in international criminal justice going forward. The second wave he identified was the one that uh, we saw with the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunals, the Rome Statute leading up, obviously, to the establishment of the ICC. But beyond that, he identified what he took to be a third way that he took to be, as it were, generating and carrying forward from that project, one that he saw as being um, uh, uh, available to the participation of, you know, essentially, the new generation of scholars, lawyers, jurists, and, uh, and politicians, to whom you know, he was implicitly saying the mandate would now be passed to, 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 um, to carry on this, this great project of developing international criminal justice. Now, you know, to hear that from the man who had um, you know, indicted Goering and cross-examined Hess, you know, it was, it's a very, very powerful and exciting thing. But 
But it, you know, what struck me as being really right and important about that was that we, we view all of these questions in the context of the fact that this is a project, a project that we, we hope, as it were, is a project of, of development, of progression, of the, the water going up rather than the opposite. But it is definitely occurring within a, within a dynamic um, context, one in which we hope that the, the powers and authorities of the institutions, as we find them today, will develop over time into something that is potentially more concrete, more robust and stronger as time goes forward. The thing I also took from that presentation was that this is a very, very long game indeed, a game um, whose time is measured in generations rather, rather than in decades. But I guess that, that question is the one that I want to interrogate a little bit. How, how do we think about the kinds of trade-offs that we're forced to make when thinking about some of the decisions that the, the ICC has been involved in in the context of the fact that it is an institution that is... In, in progress, in development, as it were. Well, I'm a philosopher, and so one of the natural things, I guess, is to, is to look back at the philosophical tradition, to see at the canon, to see what assistance can be found in answering uh, those kinds of questions. And I suppose the distressing conclusion that I reached when I looked at this was to, was to realise that, 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 that there, there isn't a lot. So, so one of the first things that you might look to is to say, well... What, what does the social contract tradition have to say about these kinds of questions? Because the social contract tradition, as we, as we know, is embodied by great classical thinkers in the tradition, such as Hobbes or Locke or Rousseau, are explicitly addressing the question of how we think about the normativity inherent in the transition from, as it were, a state of nature, a state unruled by government of law and effective legal institutions, to one which is ruled by those institutions. And as we know, the, you know, the basic form of the argument is one that says that the costs, the moral and prudential costs of remaining within the state of nature, this is the essence of the argument, are so high that there is a very, very powerful, compelling reason to collectively sacrifice some of our sovereignty in order to set up sovereign institutions that are able to effectively administer justice in an authoritative way. Well, that's, you know, that sounds like a helpful a helpful conclusion to reach. But the problematic, of course, is that this entire argument is as it were constructed post hoc. We, this argument is deployed as a legitimating tool. It's deployed from within a society that already has this institution. So we look back and we imagine ourselves to be in the position of a state of nature and we see, well, if we were in a state of nature like that, we would have reason to transform ourselves into the position that we are at the moment, one governed by authoritative um, institutions of, of rule of law. But the problem is that that's, that's not the dynamic that we face with something like the development of the ICC. What we see with the development of the ICC, I mean, and this is, the, I guess, the, um, the optimistic interpretation, is that, if anything, we are, we are in that process itself of transformation from something akin to a state of nature to something that you know, we hope maybe something more like uh, a situation of, of a rule of law. And the contract argument tells us very little about how that transition is to be made. It assumes that we've already made that transition, and we know that that transition must be possible because we find ourselves in a situation of sovereign authority, but it doesn't tell us very much about how we are to go about making the concrete trade-offs as we make that transition itself. So one kind of conclusion you might draw from this is that, well, you know, the contractarian conclusion which says there's a very powerful reason to establish authoritative institutions and mechanisms of rule of law is something like a, an aspiration. It's a normative aspiration, but it's not entirely determinative of what you have to do in particular, <coughs> um, in, in, in particular um, hard calls like trading off between, between justice and, uh, and peace. I mean, my problem with the the aspiration talk is it doesn't seem to capture the, as it were, the urgency or the normativity of the situation. I mean, aspirations to me are like, you know, one day I'll do the Inca Trail and go to Machu Picchu, you know. So, you know no, I'm never going to do it, but it makes me feel better about myself to think of myself as the kind of person who would do something like that. Um, so aspirations is, you know, seems, seems a much, much too weak interpretation um, for what's, what's going on there. It surely needs to be something with more bite to it than that. 
The other way that we have of, of dealing with these, these kinds of issues and trade-offs is through an explicitly consequentialist framework. So what a consequentialist would do is say, well, we, we need to look at the benefits that can be achieved long-term by building up the, um, the institutional and, and, um, and rule-bound elements of the court and compare that with the costs that would have to be suffered for achieving that right now. So to take one example um, that Dapa mentioned, the al-Bashir indictment. So one of the, one of the consequences of that was that al-Bashir, of, of the indictment with the, with the, um, from, by the ICC, was that the um, decision was taken to close the country to a number of NGOs who were at that time operating within the country and operating op- providing um, life-giving support. So you might say, well, look, we, what we need to do is look at the impact that that has on the lives of individuals within the country and compare that to the long-term benefits that might be expected through the decision to stick to, as it were, purely principled law-based reasons rather than taking into account these broader, pragmatic, political, humanitarian reasons. Now, I think that that's really a, a pretty hopeless route. I think that for a, for a number of reasons. I think one is that it's almost impossible to make those long-term judgments as to what the consequences of a decision like that will be. What, what will the beneficial consequences of, as it were, taking the decision to enhance the principled institutional mechanisms of the court be? Well, we don't know. How can we know that? And the extent to which there will be beneficial consequences will presumably depend in part on our ability to precisely make those decisions on the basis of legal principle rather than these broader political pragmatic questions. So that route, I think, is really is really a pretty a pretty hopeless one. There has to be, I think, a rule for some kind of principle which is deeper than the purely consequentialist one. Although how exactly that will fit in, I have to say that I'm, I, I don't have a, um, a, a clear, clear understanding of. One kind of just further iteration of that, there's an interesting article um, published by Michael Stewart um, just this month in Ethics and International Affairs. You argued that in situations like, like the, the, um, uh, the Sudan case that I just mentioned, what the court should do is in fact make the decision on a pragmatic basis, but it should pretend to have done so on the basis of legal principle, as we're trying to get the best of both worlds. Now, if the, the consequentialist argument itself is, is problematic, I think this one is, is doubly problematic. Not only do we have all of the horrible, intractable, epistemic issues, but we also have the problem of what Bernard Williams famously called um, government house utilitarianism. So, you know, he imagined a case where, you know, the, um, the wise philosopher kings, or so we hope, would make judgments from a perspective of, of perfect you know, utilitarianism. Uh, but they would pretend to do so on, on quite, uh, quite different principles. They would pretend to do so on, on the basis of principles um, that were not utilitarian. And the problem, of course, is that it's, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to imagine a government, but even more so a court, generating the kind of legitimacy and authority on the basis of action that had this, this absolutely uh, intentional double standard going, going on within it. So what, what answers, what reasons answer are there? Um, I mean, the, the distressing conclusion, I guess, is that um, I, I can see very little in the way of really clear, determinative guidance, um, at least you know, looking within, within the, 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 the tradition on, on issues precisely like this. But one, one thing that I, um, that I think it's something that, that, that needs a lot more thought um, and, uh, and research and attention paid to it. But one kind of interesting, as it were, uh, potential analogy um, was to think about the way that political thinkers, philosophers, but also potentially institutions such as a court can potentially play a role in this, this, as it were, this process of evolution, this process of development that I talked about by simply, as it were, articulating and describing a vision of a potential way of being or a potential mechanism. So let me give you an example to try and concretize this. 1795, um, Emmanuel Kant wrote his famous tract, Perpetual Peace, in which he describes the model of um, a um, federation of, of free states who would voluntarily... Um, uh, submit themselves to a structure 
uh, of, of shared law in order to ensure peace amongst them. For almost 150 years, there was no discernible um, political movement towards that objective at all. And suddenly, after the Second World War, uh, in the most unlikely context imaginable, six European states formed together into the EEC. Originally around the, you know, as you remember, around the topics not of, not of peace or, you know, not, not with some shining vision of Kant's perpetual peace, but around coal and steel. And yet that created the possibility for the institution that, as we all know, became the European Union that looks astonishingly like <coughs> the federation of free sovereign states that Kant describes in perpetual peace. Now, I, I find that a very, very interesting and suggestive um, example because what it suggests is that the ways in which normative development will occur will sometimes be obscure and will sometimes come from very, very odd and unexpected uh, circumstances, and that potentially one of the roles that um, theory can play, but also potentially an institution such as a, a criminal court, even if it doesn't have the full trappings of, uh, you know, um, a legally mandated um, in enforcement power and so forth, by articulating this normative vision can create the potential for this forward momentum, um, what Whitney Harris, I think, very, very eloquently described as, as the third wave. Thank you, David. Um, I think the floor goes to Jennifer Welch. Great. Thanks. Apologies for being late for my own panel. It's kind of like being late for your own wedding, but it's not quite as bad. I won't take time to tell you where I was, because I will take up more of my time. I want to um, focus, as I'm meant to be, the sort of politics leg of this discussion, on the role of the court in international politics. Um, and the potential role that it plays. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna identify three, but talk mainly about one. Um, the first is that I think the court is part of a broader phenomenon um, that we actually study very little in international relations, and that is the phenomenon of criminalization. That we, we discuss normative developments, we discuss how things become prohibited, become taboos, but the actual process of criminalization, what it means to have something be a crime in international politics, um, has not been widely studied. And I'm happy to say that one of my graduate students who's in the audience is studying precisely this phenomenon. Um, but it strikes me that the court is at the heart of that, but it is not the only element in that. And I think that's something we need to remember. And that process is, of course, a social process. And so it raises the question of, of what, if anything, can the processes of criminalization in other contexts, you know, predominantly a domestic context, tell us or teach us about how it might evolve internationally? And what is it about international society that makes the process of criminalization distinct and different? Um, but it strikes me, and this will sound very simplistic, but I think it is hugely important for its implications. To say that something is a crime is to say that it is not merely wrongdoing, but that it is socially stigmatized behavior that creates an imperative to act. And we have not made this judgment in international society about very many things. Very few things have been criminalized as opposed to just being viewed as prohibited. And so I think the court forms part of that, along with actually the development of the responsibility to protect principle, which has at its heart the four same crimes, although the crime of aggression now added to it, which is not part of R2P, I hasten to add, um, very similar to the court. But as with the court, I think the principle of the responsibility to protect, which interestingly is also 10 years old, um, faces this same set of questions about what it means now to be talking not about large-scale human rights violations, but about crimes which are not mere wrongdoing. So I think the ICC is part of that big, and I would submit, understudied to topic in IR, not necessarily in international law, but in IR. Secondly, of course, the court is an institution. And therefore, I think it lends itself to the same kinds of questions we ask in international relations about institutions, and particularly their legitimacy. And within international relations, of course, the legitimacy, the legitimacy of institutions is analyzed not solely through um, procedural elements, you know, the way it is designed, is it fair, is it transparent, 
and not solely through purpose, you know, does it have a purpose with, which resonates with the goals and values of those who are subject to it, but also effectiveness, you know, for better or for worse, for, for students of politics and for the real world of politics, institutions are judged by their perceived effectiveness. Which is why I think um, Dapo's points about the relationship to African states is important. Because whether or not there is a real crisis of legitimacy with the African constituency is only part of the problem. Um, the problem is broader than, than that to how that you know, alleged injustice is viewed by other parts of international society and used by other parts of international society. So that's the second way in which I think the ICC can help the discipline of international relations and forms another part of international relations. The last way, and maybe there are more, um, is the ICC as a tool of states, as an instrument of states. Um, and I want to talk here specifically about, um, and it's linked to effectiveness, of course, whether it's an effective tool, um, the tool of prevention. Because, of course, prevention was actually at the heart of the ICC. That, you know, this was going to be a project, and therefore not an inexpensive project, a project that would require the resources of states. And part of the way that it was sold is that this will not only deal with instances where we will prosecute, but it also has a preventive dimension. We're selling the court because it has a preventive dimension. So the architects of the ICC actually claimed that prevention of these crimes was going to be an important objective. The preamble to the statute explained that the state parties were determined to put an end to impunity for the perpetrators of the most serious crimes and thus to contribute to the prevention of those crimes. Now, of course, there's a huge debate on this, and you will all have views on it. But I think there are two ways in which, or two, two fashions in which I think the crime, the court can pre potentially prevent crime. <coughs> the first is in a very immediate sense, um, and I want to come back to that and talk a little bit about the Libya example. So the court can be used, or the processes of the court can be used in a strategic game of, in which deterrence is the objective and we are appealing to and using a framework of cost-benefit calculations. And the threat of punishment is being used as part of that in a very immediate sense. Uh, and, and this would be very late-stage prevention, if you will, where an act is about to be committed. And then secondly, of course, the court can be thought of as having a longer-term preventive effect. And this is what the chief prosecutor and others who surround the court like to talk about, um, that it has this potential to play what is called in the kind of conflict prevention literature a structural role. But actually there, there are two possibilities. There is a kind of educational function that the court over time through its processes, the way in which it operates, the mechanism in which it uses, the style in which it engages with populations, inculcates moral and legal values. So there's a kind of educational function. And then in the second structural sense, there is the whole capacity building agenda of which the court is very upfront about, right? That part of its agenda is um, to build capacity in states as part of the principle of complementarity to have effective and uh, legitimate domestic institutions of justice, right? Now, all three of those are potentially very powerful. And I think in a way, at, at 10, we should, we should be asking ourselves at how effective the court can be. And in a way, from a research perspective, some of these are very, very hard to assess, just like they are in domestic society. You know, what is the role of courts in prevention domestically? And what is the role of courts in education domestically? And I would, I would assert that sometimes I think we hold the ICC to incredibly high standard when we're thinking about prevention, um, which we, we may not always use when we're thinking about domestic legal instruments. But let me turn to this, this most immediate tool for my last few minutes of using 
the court and international criminal justice in that very late stage um, as a tool of, of diplomacy. And touch a little bit on the so-called peace versus justice debate um, in this. Because I think really that peace versus justice debate, which has been discussed in you know, so many ways, um, is really centered on issues of causality and timing, right? What does it take to get a lasting peace that is actually no also normatively desirable? And does justice actually yield peace dividends, or is justice built on the back of political bargains and stable institutions? And those are some of the issues at the heart of this. Of course, the justice-first proponents in that debate think that justice is an instrument that has the capacity to marginalize perpetrators and that the prospects for peace will follow and flow pretty quickly once those perpetrators have been dealt with. The critics of that logic argue that the calculation about what it takes to contain or remove very powerful spoilers, to kind of use the conflict um, language, is actually far more complex than that. And it also matters whom you replace those perpetrators with, right? And if you can't mobilize support for containing spoilers and backing reformers, then it might actually be better to wait on justice. That's kind of been the core of the debate. Now, I think a key question that emerges from this is what's the relationship between these ideas and between justice and diplomacy during conflict and peace negotiations? Because unless the pursuit of justice is very carefully negotiated with key stakeholders, it's likely to backfire or could backfire. If international justice is going to be used as a tool of international diplomacy, which I argue it was explicitly in the Libya case, then we need to think about how it should be applied effectively. Under what conditions can it actually be applied? Now, the lawyers may just bristling at that very suggestion that we think of it as a tool, but the reality is that's how it was used. If you think about the debate in the Security Council, particularly the debate over 1970, they debated for a long time about whether to threaten referral as opposed to whether to refer. And lots of people said, let's just threaten, because that'll do the job we want this to do. And others said, no, let's actually refer. But it was clearly, at that point, a tool of coercive diplomacy. It was not being thought of, first and foremost, as a tool of justice. So in, in what way, then, can this tool actually be used? And for those who are lawyers and that don't like this talk, just close your ears, because I'm going to go down this, this, this line, right? So I think, I mean, there are some who argue, and I have some sympathy for this, um, and I, I would um, advise you to look in particular at some of the work of Leslie Vinjamori kind of in response to the Catherine Sickick um, literature on justice. But, it, you know, it may be the greatest um, room for diplomatic maneuver is actually before uh, indictments come down rather than, than afterwards. Um, but if we think about the Libya case, I think it's, it's very interesting because here the ICC moved so fast and indeed its capacity to move fast was seen as dubious by some given that it couldn't move fast in other contexts. But that you could argue it actually undermined the legitimacy of the investigation and actually that it also failed to capitalize on the real potential of the tool which would be to, to use a so-called you know, wedge strategy, that those who are actually fighting on the ground are the ones who are really paying attention to these referrals, not so much those at the very top. And they are calculating the costs that they face if they continue to fight. So the referral, in that instance, may have had the greatest potential with that group um, rather than Gaddafi himself. And if you believe that those kinds of rational calculations were being made, then a better way, perhaps, two minutes, okay, to drive a wedge between um, Gaddafi and his, and his supporters might have been to say, we'll give you a week to put down your arms. Very few people believed Gaddafi was actually going to change his mind, but people believed that those around him might actually be affected by this. 
But not only did the council fail to pursue this wedge strategy, but it of course didn't support a bargaining strategy with Gaddafi to end the conflict. It actually reinforced the impression that the Security Council design was regime change and not simply protecting civilians. Now maybe bargaining of this kind was not the goal when the council referred Libya to the ICC, but as I suggested, it's hard to think it was a mechanism of justice at this stage. Um, but remember that the referral was at the bottom of the list of sanctions that were clearly intended to shape the behavior of the Libyan government. <coughs> sanctions were conditional, the referral was not, right? So the resolution, in a sense, contradicted itself. Sanctions suggested that the council wanted Gaddafi to change his behavior and that this would be sufficient, and the referral signaled that regardless of Gaddafi's behavior, the ICC would try to <coughs> Indeed, some states said afterwards, wow, we didn't think Ocampo was actually going to move this fast and actually do this. But you ask yourself, you know, what did you think? What did you think was going to happen? I'll just close by saying, you know, far from suggesting that I think these referrals are necessarily a good thing, I'm just giving you an example of how we might think about it. I think we need to be very careful about them um, because I think an impression has developed that they are a, a tool of statecraft. And I think um, I would agree with Louise Arbour here, who said recently that we need to be extremely wary of the use of these by the council for a couple of reasons. One is that, of course, they, they undermine the very spirit of complementarity on which the Rome statute rests. You know, they are applied against states who are not parties to the Rome statute. And the idea here is to have accountability, ultimately, by ha having states become parties to the ICC, not by using this mechanism. Now, some of you may disagree with me on that. But also, of course, this is profoundly unprincipled to have the council doing this. You have three council members who are not signatory to the Rome statute referring these situations to the ICC. And yes, it might be a, a tool in the arsenal of statecraft, but this is where we need to think about my second theme, the legitimacy of this institution called the ICC. And in the course of using this tool, what do members of international society do to this institution? Now, some of you may think maybe that's exactly what the US wants to do, is to delegitimize it. But it does raise the question of having that broad picture of the ICC as an institution and what that might mean. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Um, I shall not try to <coughs> summarize these very complex and rich perspective and thereby necessarily simplify them, but I think that one interesting leitmotiv has emerged across them, <coughs> which is that the ICC and its emergence presents such a tectonic shift in the international normative order that closely intertwined with the task of actually assessing the ICC is the task to rethinking our categories of success, effectiveness, adequacy, and the categories across the three disciplines represented in order to actually have that discussion properly about what we expect the ICC and how it has done over the last 10 years. With that, I'd like to open for discussion.